0: Did you know that Bitcoin uses as much energy as some entire countries? Bitcoin has a massive network of miners called ASICs that require a lot of energy to mine and secure the Bitcoin network. So for Bitcoin to be successful, it's critical to have access to cheap and reliable energy. That's why miners are moving in flocks to Texas and running their mining operations off of natural gas wells, wind turbines, solar farms, and on-grid applications. But up to now, there hasn't been a place for Bitcoin miners and energy producers to connect with each other. That's why Digital Wildcatters is bringing everyone to the energy capital of the world, Houston, Texas, for two days of networking and learning at the. your mining event power. Maybe you're an experienced miner or energy producer that's looking for partnerships, or maybe you're new to the space and you want to learn and get your foot in the door. There's going to be content and opportunities for people from all different backgrounds. March 30th to 31st, Houston, Texas, Empower. Get more information at digitalwalkheaders.com. Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein.
1: Josh Ula!
0: It's Ula time. That sounds like a great hockey name, Ula.
2: Thank you. Did you play hockey growing up? I in did. The no? Sk- no? Not, not I thought that was a rule. Well, I mean... Uh,
3: Uh, hockey is a rich man's sport and we did not grow up very wealthy so yeah no hockey in our household he was a fisherman
1: spear fisherman
3: no spear fisherman
0: yeah we we started the show we already learned that he came over on a fishing boat or his family came over on a fishing boat to to canada so it's true
2: yeah
1: i've been excited about this one for for a while josh is um unapologetically authentic i think is one way to to put it he's he's a consultant kind of like i am and even empowered me to, to speak up more as the consultant, just say where shit is, is sticking and to point it out versus just saying, oh, I can just wipe that off the wall. But um, really, really an awesome guy. Uh, I think a geophysicist by training, but I want your full story. How the hell did you go from uh, Nova Scotia guy to geophysicist, to Denver, Houston, Tulsa, what do you got going on? Who are you?
3: All okay, right. Well, I mean, there's a lot there and I'm not going to, Give you the 10-minute monologue because that's the worst. I uh, Born and raised in Nova Scotia until I wasn't anymore and I went to Ontario to school and honestly I went to Ontario to school because I missed the acceptance deadline for their 15 universities so I got a <laughs> degree in math. I spent a year in Australia during that and it was just really trying to find my direction and math is great but I was like well, I don't know at the end of the program I remember speaking with Professor Poland and being like what do I do now and he's like I don't know. Good luck. And I was like, okay, why did I, this is a long time. So uh, I was very hungover in bed one morning and I got a call from a professor saying, do you want to do a master's in geophysics? And I've been kind of faking being a geologist for most of my undergrad. So it was like a really good fit. So I, uh, I jumped in and did that. And from there, I went down to Houston to the SEG conference and I met ExxonMobil. We hit it off like peas and carrots. They hired me and I, I went to work for ExxonMobil as a geophysicist for half a But this is where the twist comes. Yes. Uh, I met my wife down there. And uh, she got into residency in Denver, so we had to move. And I kind of fed it was, it was 2014, 2015, you know, nothing particularly was going wrong. Everything was going wrong, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was terrible. And uh, so I hired a guy named Bill Frank uh, to be my Sherpa, my career advisor for six months. And we met all the time, and he talked me through, it. we really did a lot of soul searching on what made for a happy Josh. And it was just an amazing adventure. If anybody ever is offered the opportunity to have a career advisor, definitely like just scoop it up because it is unbelievable or if they're terrible, don't do it. I was going to
0: say, I I think that depends (laughs) on the advisor. I wouldn't hire Jeremy to be my career advisor.
1: I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to get you to pay me to be a career advisor. I have a, I have a good one. This is interesting. I like.
3: I mean, yeah, so it was everything. And so what we figured out is like, I really didn't like doing science. I wasn't particularly good at it. was very good at teaching it and really like talking about it. So what is that technical sales? Right? So I pivoted over to fracture ID and started going to business development. And now, fast forward to where I am now, I help companies grow from being small to medium. Uh, not just on the sales and marketing side, but looking at like, the whole spectrum of like, what problems you're facing, what business strategies to implement. Just trying to be useful. And it's super fun. That's what I do now. Is
0: that uh, mostly tech, tech companies that you're advising? or
3: No. <laughs> it turns out, that I, and you guys already know this, I'm going to say it, you're going to act like you're like, I'm so impressed. But uh, I mean, we all know it every business is facing the same problems, whether you're opening like a hot dog stand or you're opening like a big tech company. When, they, when you sit down with the executives and you like talk through like, what you know, are you worried about when you're driving into work? It's almost always like one of six things. And they feel like it's a snowflake situation where they're like, I'm, not, I'm going through this alone. I'm very worried. And if you just listen and you reflect, you're like, no, in fact, so I've helped a, a doctor's practice, a branding agency, a plug and band company, a 3D print shop. Uh, ESG Solutions is a big part of what I'm doing right now, helping them merge because Deep Imaging and ESG Solutions went together. And then my primary one is Exum Instruments, where we build mass spectrometers.
1: The, the Exum thing is, is really interesting to me. I've heard some people call it Exum. I call it Exum. It's nice that you just clarified what, it, what it's actually called. But, but can you explain what, what Exum is? Because to me, it sounds like pretty complex science, big box, expensive, awesome tech. But, but tell me what's going on there.
3: All right, so, I mean, for anyone that's listening that's never heard of Exxon, right now, they're just like, oh, it's Theranos. Uh, I'm not going to have any. I'll check you later. A big box that does magical things. <laughs> Perfect. One drop of blood, guys, and I can make you win the lottery, and you're going to love it. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, well, we, we built a mass spectrometer. Well, I can't say we, once again, not good at science, just good at talking about it. But Jeff Williams uh, came up with this idea. and. and Mass spectrometry, for one, I'm just going to own right at the gate, isn't something that people are like, oh, I can't wait to hear about it. So most of your listeners have now stopped listening. I'm sorry. But well, the one yeah, thing give, around,
0: the, give this one sentence, what is mass spectrometry is, real quick? The study of what's
3: in things. Okay. So you're assessing the energy to mass ratio of the elements or compounds that exist in a material, essentially for QAQC, R&D, uh, production. If you want to know your elemental composition of something, use a mass spectrometry. And if you had a liquid or a gas, it's already solved. Like, there's already a system out there that will do it. But if you have a solid, literally, you're kind of up a creek without a paddle. You're in a real pickle. So, so they, gas chromatography for,
0: really for gas and mass spectrometry for Liquids. solid. Okay. Yeah. All right.
3: Like an ICP. Anyways, yeah. So they're all out there already. So for us, what we do is we've done this two-foot by two-foot mass box that does all the mass spectrometry inside of it, and it can really be run by, like, a tech. And so... the once again, I thought the selling benefit here was going to be a lot cheaper because it's smaller and simpler than the other ones out there, but literally it just didn't exist. And so we're creating a $19 billion market right now in the U.S., and it's, it's relatively straightforward. And we have some amazing use cases that we're already deploying it into, but it's super fun. Yeah,
1: wow. it was, That particular company, Tim, when I first launched um, sure. Funk Futures, came up from a number of investors, Jim Thorson and people like, hey, you should talk to those guys. And I hit up Josh, and his response was, no, our issue right now is not marketing and sales. It's like delivery. Like there's, there's people knocking down the door to do business with us. I'm like, well, you know, you're, you're, one, of the few, you're one of the few, but it sounds, it sounds cool and it doesn't surprise me. I think Ellen Scott, who's Ellen Williams now, is over there. So like you guys picked a lot of young, forward-thinking, really bright geos and engineers to push this out there, but that's not, your, that's not your only thing. Tell me a little bit more about your, your business. Like what do you got going on right now?
3: When you say mine, you mean like excellent? No, Josh Eula. Uh So, I mean, that, that, that's most of my time is spent on XM instruments. And then it, it's, it's so fun and it's so different. We just finished a safe round, so we raised around $2 million. We're just right. surging. We got two SBIR grants last year. Thank goodness for SBIR grants. And so then the second of that one is ESG Solutions. Uh, so they, they were acquired by Deep Imaging last year. They do micro and frac monitoring using Kelvin Fiber. Deep imaging, use electromagnetics. And so we're trying to package all this together. We're not trying. Well, we've packaged this all together into a toolbox. We're doing our rebranding deployment in early March. And now we're trying to... And this is, this is where I can get pretty, I don't know, ferocious. That's not the right word. Who knows? There is a word that describes what I'm about to be, where it's like folks need to know what the heck their frack looks like so that they can optimize it. Like if we go back to Theranos, the black box that does the blood and you win the lottery, that's kind of how fracking is going right now in that like, no one's excavating down to 10,000 feet. Conico Phillips did that really good one where they did a tilt core near a frac. But even that, we're dealing with sample size one or two. So our R squared regression is one, like we're just killing it, you do nothing wrong. Yeah. But we don't have a sample size that's statistically valid. And so we keep working in the dark. And so this is my excitement for ESG Solutions is that we give you the opportunity to have a look at what the heck is going on. So you can figure out well spacing, wine rack configuration, you know, sequencing, all these things that obviously matter and they've been trying to solve for it for decades, but now we can finally do it. And so
2: pretty excited for that. Get all that, Tim? Wow. That's
0: a, there's, there's a lot there. I you know, I always play uh, Jeremy did it in the last pod, but I always try to play dumb guy. Hey, can you define this? But there was there's too much to go back and hit on there. But uh, I wanna I, I do wanna I wanna reverse and go back. So I, I love all of this, but that moment of, and I've seen it to a few people, you got your degree in math, now what? So, is that a natural math to geophysics? Is that one of the, the is that the way people go from math to geophysics? Is that very common or is it, I, I don't know, like just curious uh, about that path, you know, and why geophysics?
3: No, yeah, so, like I was saying, I was kind of faking being a geologist. I got a minor in geology. It was mainly okay. for the field courses because they were so fun. And uh, I was just really enjoyed the culture around geology. A lot of being outdoors, a lot of just happy people. And I was like, yeah, this is amazing. So I think that's a great A lot means. of
0: sandals.
3: Oh, I socks and sandals all day feeling great. <laughs> there, you, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so cozy. Big, broad-brimmed hats, sun protection. Like, really up my alley. I'm married to a dermatologist, so she's, like, very supportive of that kind of stuff. So <laughs> cover the skin. Uh, but no, I would say most people from math didn't go into geophysics. I think a lot of geologists do, or folks that are aiming towards geophysics from the very beginning. Geophysics ends up being kind of the oddball that folks don't normally just start out thinking they're going to do. You don't really learn about geophysics in high school. So it's something you kind of migrate to if it's your interest. So yeah, my, kind of uh,
0: my boss is well known for choosing his major. He went to the University of Kansas. He chose his major for geology because it sounded like something he can get a lot of hiking in.
3: Yep. So I mean, <laughs> no doubt. you know, honestly, if we even back up a little bit from there, I like I I joked about, you know, it was the only one I hadn't accepted and it was the only one left out there. So Carleton University was where I ended up going. I applied to something like 16 universities because I didn't know what I wanted. Uh, I think at Ryerson, I was going to be like in directing and filmography and McGill. It was going to be biology. Like I was just like, roll the dice. And so I was in this uh, committee on violence in the public school systems with all these adults when I was in grade 12. And they're like, oh, what school are you going to go to? And I was like, oh, I haven't decided yet. And they're like, do you know they have deadlines? And I was like, nope. I said, I'm going to go. <laughs> I looked the committee and I went home and I went through my stack of papers that i have been ignoring and I'd missed 14 of the 16 deadlines. And I was like, oh no, this is a real pickle. But then luckily the two that were left thought I was playing hardball and giving bigger scholarships. So I was like, there we go. Oh,
1: so-, that's <laughs> so, so talk about the, the moving within the, the states. Has that been driven by your your wife being the doctor, uh, like that, you guys end up in Tulsa or Houston. You said Denver. She had, I, I think, a residency or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, is that what's dictated it? You sort of go where the wife's business opportunities are, or, or why? Why the yeah. moves?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, in the beginning for residency, and then for fellowship, because we went to Denver and then back to Houston. Yeah, I mean, you take the role of the trailing spouse, like whoever's you know has to. That's so all I did. And then we decided together to move to Idaho. And then we decided together during the pandemic, having a newborn that was in the NICU and being alone, in the woods, you know, what are we doing here? So then we moved to Oklahoma to, to live in, in Tulsa and have that support.
2: Whoa. Huh. How's the kid? How's the kid? Oh, great. It was just a
3: week in the NICU. But then I feel like it, you're just like, you just need the family support. Especially, I mean, the pandemic has affected everybody in different ways, right? No doubt. And really, for me, it was the biggest learning is that you know when you're younger you feel like you're just an island and you can kind of do whatever you're a free spirit and then as you get older and you have more responsibilities you're like dang it that community support would be really nice that family support would be really really nice and i miss it and i think it was just a maturity that came with the pandemic that helped us have that clarity
0: and why tulsa you have you have have family from here
3: yeah my my wife's from here so we live half we were awfully close to our parents uh like half a mile down the road the wave and say hi to brad from here perfect it's nice.
0: That's nice for the uh, babysitting capabilities and things like that,
2: for sure. Yeah,
3: no doubt. Yeah. No doubt.
1: Do, you, uh, do you feel like it's home, Tulsa?
3: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. So, if, yeah, let's spend the next 31 minutes just talking about how great Tulsa is because I could do this all day. I, okay. So, Tulsa is kind of like one of those cities in some kind of Avengers film that from the outside looks like a bit of woods. And you go through the force field and you're like, oh, my goodness, there's water slides and everyone's having a good time running Triceratops in here. Uh, similar for Tulsa in that, like, I don't think they advertise well externally. I think they're working on that, no doubt. But once you're inside it, the internal uh, like advertising and communication and community and business here, dang, you can build anything here. There is so much money. There is so much support. Uh, There's just so many uh, facilities here to help people grow a business from small to medium. It's unbelievable. And I've met. I've got to hang out with the Secretary of Commerce, the Secretary of Energy, just because they, they make themselves available in Oklahoma to meet with folks. It's, it's not here. It's like, now, there's, really
0: there's two cities. Tulsa's one of them that I find that it's woefully under marketed. Um, Pittsburgh being the other, you know, it's a yeah. great, a great place to be uh, and not in, in, to sell Pittsburgh. It's not a bunch of, you know, uh, smokestacks and factories and steel mills that you think about when, mm-hmm. when you remember Pittsburgh of the seventies. Tulsa's like that as well. I lived there briefly. Um, in the uh, early 90s, and I, it was so easy to get around. And at the time I was there, Tulsa was the uh, exact demographics of the United States of a whole, as a whole. So, you know, how hmm. many African-American, Hispanic, it, it matched the rest of the country. I don't know if it still does. And what was interesting at the time was that's where McDonald's would choose to test their new uniforms or their new okay. food stuff, or a lot of these companies would test market things in Tulsa because it would could reflect what the demographics of the rest of the country so McPizza was in Tulsa and never made
3: it out oh I in Canada McPizza became a whole nationwide thing and as a kid it was just family-sized pepperoni pizzas for Josh it's so
1: bizarre so you know I'm from New Hampshire and as you get north you're pretty much in southern Canada at that point Mm -hmm. like you're in the woods there's deers and all you know yaks and all this crap so there was always pizzas at those too. So for some reason, like Canadian into like just below the border loved the McPizza. I mean,
3: I, I would kill for a McPizza right now. I Dude, felt it was like, good. I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry. I feel like it was, it was likely deep fried and who cares? It was so, so good.
1: <laughs> I do not even think about that. I haven't had one since I was like 12. Um, no, so on Tulsa, Tim, you talked about that a long time ago with Don Burdick down there and he's echoed some similar sentiments, right? That it's just an easy place to kind of launch a company to get uh, support from people locally as well as government and be able to have success, whatever. And I think
0: Don is a great example. He actively tries to help other people in Tulsa and get them together and make them network. I mean, um, I think that that community of, it's a, you know, a little social network of, hey, you need some help? Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's get you guys introduced to everybody.
3: And, and, and the thing is, it's really surprising because it's genuine. I've met a lot of people in my travels that will always say, yeah, I'll help you, no doubt. And then when you call them that help because they've offered it, it doesn't come to fruition. You're like, well, then why did you say it? Like, was it to look good in front of your friends? This is it stupid? Like, don't do that. And here it's quite the opposite. Like genuine, like, like I said, I've, I've had audiences with everyone I could want to just to like understand, like, what should I do in this situation? Where should I go here? Everyone wants to mentor. Everyone wants to help. Like, if I were going to be building a company, I would bring it to Tulsa Tooth Suite. And the amount of incentives they have here as well, it's nuts. Like, yeah, they will do it.
1: People move there.
3: Yeah, Tulsa Remote is $10,000 to work remotely here. And they're pretty generous with that, with, like, apply and there's good odds of getting it. It's, it's, it's incredible.
1: Well, perhaps
0: uh, you should, uh, when you're you know, done with these, these companies getting them to medium and you're not interested in taking them to large, maybe you should get on the uh,
3: Tulsa marketing uh, team.
2: Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I meet
3: with the Chamber a bunch, but, like, there, there's so many different facets here, too. There's such an alignment between, like, the philanthropy, like the George Kaiser Foundation. Like, they, they have loads of money, and they're just injecting it. Like, have you guys seen The Gathering Place? Uh, I haven't. I so. get, get on Google. Search it. Not right now, because obviously we're doing a podcast. <laughs> but all, all the viewers at home, you can go do it. because Who cares? Uh, but The Gathering Place is this park that's like an amusement park. Like, words yeah. cannot describe it's paid for 100% not by government, but by all the companies in town being like, I wanna make this a place you wanna bring your kids. And it will blow your mind what you're gonna see on this website. And it's growing every day. They're even damming the river up to make a water park to go. Like it's crazy. And so all these folks are all aligned towards the same common goal. So I think like to your point, if you wanna help grow Tulsa, you don't have to just go for the government role and be like, I'm gonna help market it. There's so, so many other different facets that are reaching out into the ether of America to tell people what's going on here. Like, it's unbelievable.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, Tim, we, we've talked about Oklahoma a little bit on this, this podcast, but the, the, the two big cities in Oklahoma, Tulsa and, and OKC, I've had some pretty good success doing business there, but only if I go there, right? It's not the type of place where you're going to win remotely like this uh, over the web, whereas you can do that a little bit more in Denver and Houston. I think there's that expectation, well, you can't always travel is like well yeah just just when you come down here let's let's talk about it but it always results in something great right well you yeah. did come down you check that box you care you like it here good now we can open up some gates for you but that took time like that took repeated visits to those cities to be able to say okay he's not just an outsider he values us now we can start
2: talking agreed a little bit a little bit different so yeah, it's, it's, it an in,
0: it's an in-person town it's a face-to-face town and you know, an, I used to go up there for what the Adam meetings, uh, those, those were, those were great. That was one of Don Burdick's things. And again, really out of that, Hey, you just want to get all the people who are doing acquisition and divestitures into the same place and who's got what deals and we'll have a little speaker and a good meal. And yeah. it was great to, great to see that.
3: I mean, it's absolutely true. And it's so small as well. Like there's a place in now it's going to be a super local trying to really show off how cool I am. In uh, Utica Square over here called Wild Fork. And they have just super good breakfast. They're really small. They have some outdoor seating. Literally, I, whenever I have a business meeting that could be a breakfast, I'll just go there. And invariably, I'll run into two or three other people that like are doing the same. And so it's like, it's really fun to bring folks from out of town because you'd be like, oh, see at that table. And you'd be like, oh, that person, that person. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I could name drop some people that I've run into there. But it's just like, it almost feels like you're just in your own kitchen kind of bumping into like other folks in the morning. Like It's, it's just It's an interesting old timey place and people say, you know, it's going to blow up like Austin. And I really hope it doesn't because Austin is very crowded. I like Austin a great deal, but it takes a long time to get around Austin. And I think that if we can keep this kind of like medium size, which is obviously my favorite, I think we're going to be really happy here. Yeah. We keep, keep hitting that word medium.
0: So, uh, so what, I mean, I guess, uh, Josh, you're helping companies. Now this is your shtick moving from small to medium. How many, can you work with at a time? I and mean, you're obviously focused on at least the couple that take up the bulk of your time now, but how are you spreading yourself out? I mean,
3: That's super interesting. So I, I, it's through very clear, open, honest communication. So early on when I tried this, uh, I wasn't because you learn about how to communicate. And I was like, oh no, this will work. I'll just, you know, I'll do some here, some there. And, and then invariably I got too busy and my family took the hit and I wasn't, I was just working way too hard, right, Like this is, not sustainable, I'll burn out and I'm grumpy. No one wants this, I don't need this. And so what I did was a lot of on a monthly basis is auditing my timeline, seeing what's absorbing my time, seeing what's not and prioritizing. And actually I took a leadership course here in Tulsa called the same leadership. And we spent a lot of time just focusing on the idea that you know, if you have a list of these many things you do, just cut the bottom half off and just go, like the guy that was running at Sean Copeland, one of the folks just went one day when he had this epiphany is he phoned half the people that he was on boards for and said, I'm off your board today. And they were like, oh, please, we need you. And he's like, I mean, I'm not doing that kind of job. Like, I'm good, but like, I'm too busy and I'm distracted. And like, you need to find someone that's a better fit. This is a better opportunity for someone that has more. You know,
2: there
3: we go. Sorry, my phone went crazy for a second there. I uh, took a lot of that and uh, I've been trying to implement it myself. So everyone that I work for knows what I'm available for. And it, it makes it just just work. And it means that if I reach a point that I am too busy, I'll be able to communicate in a very straightforward way because I'll know where I was at, you know, the month
2: prior and not that.
0: That's an interesting approach. I, it, it, I don't know if you've read the getting things done methodology. Um, it's, it's got an interesting way of prioritizing tasks and, uh, you know, it's kind of, I think that fits into, Hey, when you get down to this part of the list, yeah, that, list just needs to disappear. Um, you know, and I don't subscribe to the getting things done, but every once in a while I'll adopt a little piece of it to, you know, to accomplish my to-do list.
3: Well, you can't see the next shelf up here is just like a bunch of management books or right? like crossing the chasm or four disciplines of execution. all that. Well, that's right?
1: a good one. Crossing I mean, the chasm is, is one of my favorites.
3: Yeah, um, that's It's, it's so to to impactful. Take companies
1: just, from small to medium, right? I mean, that's really the,
2: yeah.
3: I, uh, Before I was Josh UL LLC, I was almost going to be page 226 LLC, because on page 226, they define in the crossing the chasm, uh, your sales pioneer, the person that can get it and communicate it and get you from zero to one. And I was like, oh, I was reading like This is me. And so I almost opened a company on that. And I was like, this is too much explaining. My name's easier.
2: Yeah. (laughs) But I might take that.
3: I might try to (laughs) take that. Jeremy needs to take that. Page 226. It's all for you guys. You guys can have page 226. The only thing left is my phone still so it calls itself page C26. So I'll give it to you. <laughs> uh, but what I was going to say is like with the getting things done, I, I think that all these management books and all these theses, like I'm, I'm surrounded by them, they all have useful bits, right? And for those individuals that wrote them, that's how all their bits accumulated is into that story, that book. You know, it works for them. But if, if it works for everybody, there will only be one book. And be like, this is how you manage a business. But I think what you're describing is right, it's like, there is something useful there. There's something useful in the way Dave Ramsey looks at, you know, money. There's something useful in like, Wealthy barber, right? Like they're—they all have bits that are quite beneficial, and we just need to be able to. Like one thing I try to do, and I haven't done this year yet, is protect an hour in the morning to read some of these books, and then highlight and start making my own book in my head of the parts that are useful. But I think for me, four disciplines of execution has been the the largest impact in my life.
0: That's a that's a good one to have to put that on a list. I'm not familiar with it. Um, From a sales perspective, I think the one that I aspire to follow, which I'm not very good at, is Sandler methodology for sales. And, you know, I, I think, and for some things it works great, but I, you know, adopt things out. But the, one of the parts that I see when I'm coaching young sales guys now is behavior. So they're bat triangle, behavior, attitude, and technology or technique. Um, if, if you can, you need to manage all three of those, and then you can, you know, it, it won't derail you in your sales process. So it's an interesting and I think it, it actually does go over into other tech and other places. If you can manage all of those, um, you know, you'll, you'll be good in whatever you do.
2: Yeah.
3: I mean, I mean, that's incredible. Okay, so something you're describing there that all three of us know is how much sales has changed in the last 20 years, right? Absolutely. Like it's, it's night and day, and the folks that aren't evolving to catch up to it are struggling. And, and I feel for them because what they did worked for so long, and now they're like, why is it not working? You, know, you kind of just keep running into that same wall. And I, I think now it is so relationship-based. And if you're not providing useful value every time and being like a human, <laughs> it's not going to work, right? But I, I, I think like what you just described with that triangle, it's, it's everything. It's your behavior and attitude. Of course, the technology has to be there. You have to be selling something that's not stupid. But everything else is based on like, are you a good human? Are you going to do right by it?
0: Yeah, what's interesting is I, I fight, fight this, uh, the computer scientists, Uh, of the world think, don't even think that sales guys are necessary in a lot of cases, simply because, well, you know, you, you do the right thing and people will come to you. And it's interesting. I I keep proving, it it keeps proving wrong, that methodology. All right, we're finally to the point where you don't need sales guys because we've got the internet or we're finally to the point that we don't need sales guys because we've got the bots Mm -hmm. um, and all that. But, you know, I think the relationship, especially ironically enough, the, uh, the more well, the more expensive something is, the more the relationship and the emotion matters. You think that as when you start getting to a million dollars, you think, OK, it's all going to be uh, a spreadsheet with check boxes, you know, and we'll decide between the two products that are a million dollars each or something. But it's amazing how much more emotion is tied and the relationship matters more, the bigger the numbers get.
1: Hell yeah. You need a throat to choke. Well, I don't want to get too far away from crossing the chasm because there it's actually somewhat personal to me. Um, one, I think early on, maybe in like the chapter two, they show the percentage of companies that are actually like early adopters versus laggards. And it, it made sales feel so far less personal, getting rejected so far less personal. It, it got me to, all the no got me to the innovators, the early adopters mm-hmm. quickly. And frankly, there's only like 3%. That are going to to fit that profile, right? You have to find who are those companies, and even just to throw out some names. Like, you know, if you look at a uh, a Pioneer Natural Resources or Chevron or ConocoPhillips, like they don't have to go first, right? Somebody else can stub their toe, and they can say, okay, well, you've proven it out in this asset. Now we can go in and jump to your product. But some companies are just addicted to we want to push the envelope. So like a Green Lake Energy, right? You see Rob Henry, yep. Matt Gallagher, those guys. Like, they want to be different. They want to forge their path, take their learnings from the past, but also be early adopters because there's benefits sometimes in doing that. But what Crossing the Chasm does, and I recommend this highly to anybody who's selling for early stage companies, is it's really not you, man. It's not personal, right? Most of these companies are going to say no because they're laggards by default, and that's just how companies are, generally speaking, especially in oil and gas. If you take all those no's to heart, this isn't a long game for you. I think you embrace the yeses that cross the chasm, the rest.
0: I think Jeremy, just to, to build off the point, one of the things that a lot of sales guys fall into trouble with is taking those personally, regardless of whether you're an early startup (sighs) or anything else. And you, you come home and kick the dog or, you know, whatever. And you've got to, you've, you've got to separate that professional from your personal. It's really the no's, there may be no's that are about you, but no's are never really or shouldn't ever be about you. You just take it in. Hey, I'm still the same guy. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And that comes back to that behavior. Uh, hey, I'm going to take the no and learn from it and move on and not take it personally. If you take it personally, it, it will be,
3: uh, you know, well, you're going to kick the dog too often. Yeah, that poor dog in that story. Yeah, yeah. But uh, just to like, lean into it. And I think this is like a big takeaway is, Going back to like learning about communication and like I'm always trying to get better at it, learning and like being able to give feedback and receive feedback. And as a big part of that is that when you are receiving all those notes and it's invariable, like I just did a fundraising round and we talked to 100 VCs, you know, most of them are notes because you're not a thesis fit or whatever, right? Like it's just, it's appropriate. One thing that I, I always did was like, I never was pushy. I was never like, you know, we need this deal to happen. And like I would approach the conversation as is this a fit for your thesis and are you guys a fit for us? And if either of us were a no, then we would just move on. But if I ever received a no from them when I thought it was a fit the other way, I would always reach out and ask, like, can you give me 15 minutes? And walk me through why we're a no. I'm not trying to use this time. Like never, ever use that time to convince them to be a yes, because that's pretty easy. But if you can learn from them, and they can tell you why you are a no, and then you understand, like, oh, yeah, like, definitely, I should have seen that they were a no to us as well. Or you communicate something incorrectly, or you missed the mark somewhere, suddenly, you're, you're developing and growing as an individual, and then for your next conversation, you're wiser. And then the person that just helped you and mentored you has become a friend, and you're creating genuine human connections and not just like these transactional connections that you see all too often. I mean, yeah, that's, I think that's one of that. the
0: one of the better approaches that I get is where I ask them for the courtesy: please tell me no. Don't string me out and say we'll meet next week or two weeks. If it's a no, please. I don't want to chase you and you don't want to be chased. Please tell me no.
3: And, and it
0: helps. Mm. It helps the, the, the friendship or the relationships like, okay, whatever I'm talking about right now is a no. And I'm good with that. It might be better for you in six months and we'll talk then, or I may have something else and they'll be more willing to talk to you if they know that, Hey, I can jettison real quick with this guy. If, if it's not a fit.
3: And then, if you go one step further and you find out you're not a fit, right? Like whatever you're selling shampoo. And the person like, honestly, my hair is fine. I'm trying to get something for my elbow being dry. You're like, I want to introduce you to Sarah. She says it's ointment. Right. And then you introduce them to people that will fix their problem. Because at the end of the day, if you're not selling a solution, you should not be. And if you can get them to someone that will solve their problem, they can move on past that. You know, like, but, and right. you're not a sales guy I anymore. Mean, you're a trusted advisor. But what, flies
1: in the face, but what flies in the face of that when you are a W-2 employee, and it's a big part of the reason why I'm not right now, is you go in and you get that no from somebody that really likes you, you're at somewhat of a dead end. Yes, you can do them a favor and point them somewhere else. Your boss who's reporting up to the board says, well, you just got to, you didn't sell that. I needed you to sell that account. Well, they didn't want it. That doesn't matter, right? You needed to get revenue out of that account. And, and that, that whole fundamentally just, just broke me as a salesperson, because like you said, Josh, you want to provide value right? You want to be okay with taking the no and finding some value for them so that you can do business down the road, which is the way a a symbiotic business relationship
3: should be. Yeah. To say like, you should have gotten that account. If you didn't have a solution for the problem they're trying to solve right now, no, you shouldn't have. And then what that salesperson has to bring back into their company is that information. Like if they're not doing that second part where they're like, "Hey, look, we didn't get this, but it's because they don't really care about their wealth spacing right now. They care about like, getting more affordable sand or tracking their water or whatever it is at the top of their list, you'd be rude to force them to deal with the problem that's third on their list. The same way we were talking about our list earlier that like, no, that's way down there. I don't care about advertising in your journal. I can't have this meeting right now. There's too many things on fire. Like this is not me fixing your problem. And so if that salesperson doesn't have a safe enough environment to go back to their boss and say, look, we didn't get this because this is the problem they're trying to solve. They're not worried about this. And then have a brainstorming session about like, how do we fix that problem? So we can get to the next one on the list or whatever it is. It's just kind of foolish. You're just kind of pushing rocks up. All right, I,
0: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in, man. I feel like we're doing, coaching each other here, but... <laughs> oppor- so okay. one of the things you got to do is coach your superiors into knowing this is what an opportunity looks like. You have to have a confirmed budget, a confirmed need, a confirmed, you know, itch that we can you know, scratch. Plan, plan. And if we don't have all three of those, it's not actually an opportunity and nobody should be communicating that this is a million dollar deal. It's not a deal because mm. it's not an opportunity yet. It's still a prospect yeah. and you may want it, but we, we haven't even gotten it to an opportunity because we haven't confirmed that they can and are, will, and are willing to spend the money. So I think that's always a trap. I think a lot of sales guys wind up falling into is, hey, I got this great opportunity in the Middle East for, you know, 10 million dollars. Now, no, it's not an opportunity yet. It's a prospect that someone may spend money on. We don't, you know, and so I think sometimes that gets communicated up to the board and say, no, we need that deal,
2: mm-hmm. and,
0: you know, or maybe the board brings the deal. I've seen this happen a lot where the, hey, we've introduced you to the CEO of this company and they have this problem. Go sell it. Well, okay, we go in there, but they have the problem, but they don't have the budget.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's not actually an opportunity. And then you wind up in this situation with at least one famous, famous uh, story that Jeremy and I know of, uh, well, in his career with uh, one of his, one of his bosses, at the number, the, the client disappears and you're left holding the bag because they thought it was an opportunity and it really never was. You never were in the game.
2: Brutal. Brutal.
0: Yeah. The, anyway.
1: you know, who's who's your champion? What internal politics are happening? Right, that may prevent you from winning that account. We're not sitting in those boardrooms, and especially, you know, with COVID changing, I'm in way less boardrooms in general. Right? Yeah. People don't necessarily want the sales guy, but you know, it, it kind of is what what it is. But so, hey, Josh, that,
0: that transparency thing you were talking about in the beginning, between how many of these companies can I manage, taking them from small to medium, I think that that's same with your your bosses. You got to keep that transparency all the way up.
3: So, and then, and so that brings us to like a really, really big topic that we have no time to get into, but I'll just like, I'll bridge it and then we'll just abandon it, cut it and let it go. Yeah, you can come back on. But uh, when we look at the issues of oil and gas space, right? It almost comes back to everything we're talking about just in the, in the mi- microcosm of sales is non-proper communication of expectations. And we look at operators communicating with investors you know, there's a big fallout happening right now where folks aren't excited to put their money in oil and gas because they were promised they were going to get Boku to cash and they just got loads of it, right? Mm. The returns were great. If they had promised a more realistic approach of what they were going to get for their investment, I think people would keep throwing money in, but they were promised like, oh, well, you know, space is well two feet apart. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to produce great. And there was no real science. It was just like, yeah, it's construction work, manufacturing. And I think like if we could bring the level, and this is, this is what I harp on all the time, if you bring a level of transparency, honest communication, all the way from your client up to your investor through your organization, right? Like if I bring it back to Exxon, every time we do a sales call or a pitch, everybody that was on that call is expected to jump on a call directly afterwards internally and give feedback to everyone who spoke or didn't speak on that call. So if you are the lowest rung person and, and Jeff, our CEO, is on there, you're expected to give him some positives and some negatives. And he's expecting to give them back to you. And everyone is expected to receive them, not in like a contentious, defensive manner, but be like, look, I need to learn from this, tell him more. It doesn't mean you'll always agree with it. But everyone knows where everyone sits. We do that with our investors, where they know exactly what's going on. We do it with our clients. And it means that you only have to carry one truth. I learned that from uh, a mentor of mine, Martin Estel, where he's like, the joke he makes is, I'm not clever to have more than one truth, so I just tell the truth all the time. But it's such a simple thing. But it's, it, if you can get there, by changing the culture of where you are to allow the truth to just be the
2: only thing you talk about. How easy is that? You know, so, uh, this is so fun. Josh, I, I want to talk briefly about,
1: about energy, right? This is one account that you brought me into. And these are, Tim, they're doing like PNA work for basically Colorado based wells right now. There's a whole big budget for them. We've got to shut in a whole bunch of these wells. There's methane leaking. We know how to do this. However, these guys haven't been on the services side, so they haven't done sales. They've been with operators, right? And part of what is going to make them successful is their willingness to say, we don't really know how to market or sell or pitch these things, right? So Josh and I have meetings with them consistently where we talk about sales execution, even a simple thing like, hey, there was a guy named Jimmy on the call, and at one point you called him Jim, and at another point you called him James. No, we're going to call him what he said his name is. That's Jimmy like really simple things to like get your alignment right uh, and how we do business. And the way that these guys receive it is awesome. And they incorporate it quickly. Sometimes that naivete is is a benefit. Like I think they're going to do well because they don't have all these years of being molded a certain way. They don't push back and argue when we give positive criticism, right? So to to see that evolution, it's like, I know those guys are going to do well because they're continuing to learn and get better after each session versus saying, this is proven it's worked before. It's how we do it now, but uh, ju- just sort of a two second, uh, you know, insight on them. I didn't expect it because they came from the operator side. I assumed they would feel like they knew everything. They've been very open to say, there's a lot. We
0: if working with people who are coachable and having a culture of coaching where everybody is getting and receiving is, is fabulous. And you don't see that very often. Um, and you, you have to start very early in the company to be able to establish that
3: culture, I think. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I agree. And just to bring it back to tack really quick, like I think earlier on I said, you know, folks that were sales folks 20 years ago that aren't evolving to this level of like just being a partner and being a true friend to your sales, you know, the people you're selling to. Uh, that's what they kind of represent is that they were operators. And so the, the beauty of what they do is when they go and talk to someone, they're just as if they work on their team. And so the conversation is one of like, yeah, I know what you're dealing with. I, I dealt with that. But they also came with a whole boatload of humility that I do think sometimes when you transition from being an operator to anything that isn't an operator, you're kind of coming off a pedestal. Like you, yeah. you were, I worked at ExxonMobil and it was such a pill for me to swallow to not work at ExxonMobil anymore. I flew yeah. business class. I hobnobbed. I was the bee's knees. And um, but these guys just very quickly were like, no, no, we're just going to be a service company. We're going to kill it. And it is very refreshing to work with them. They're a great, great shop. They're, they're going to do very, very well just yeah. because they, once again, are just open, honest, and transparent.
1: And, and I don't know, and I say this to them, I go, you know, assume your competition is doing this, but, but also assume that what you want to do is exactly what they're not doing, right? Like you, you break down the walls and be a person versus just another service provider. You, every time you reach out to someone and send an email or make a phone call, you don't have to ask if they're signing the contract. You can drop in, hey, here's a presentation I just saw that's relevant to you guys. Here's a press release. I think, you know, I, I like to, to talk about sales as like, as like a bank, right? And, and as a salesperson, we're always asking for a withdrawal. But if you never make a deposit into that bank, there's nothing to withdraw, and the bank gets sick of you, and they cut you off, right? You got no money here, man. There's nothing for you to do. So you got to feed that, right? And feeding that isn't asking for something every single time. It's easy to forget that, right, especially with the pressures inherent to sales, but you've got to be making deposits to be able to ask for a withdrawal. I
0: think I've heard this a marriage counselor do, uh, make the same speech.
1: I, I think mine has said the same thing, too. <laughs> I agree
2: with you. I mean, not yeah. much to add.
3: You're 100% right. Yeah. And that's just the idea of partnership and, and communication. It's just if you're not on your client's team, if you're not on your company's team, it's just not going to work.
1: Josh, where can, where can people find you? You mentioned you have a website, LinkedIn, email, any of that stuff. Where can people uh, try to align with, with you as a forward-thinking kind of a strategist?
3: Wow, so many nice words about me. So I, I made a cheeky website. It's just J-O-S-H-U-L-L-A.com. Uh, Studio Forum out of Calgary made it. So if you need someone to put together a website or branding kit for you, definitely go Studio Forum. They are the coolest. Okay. Uh, beyond that, I am on LinkedIn. That's for sure. And then also my email is just super cheeky as well. So it's Josh at Josh uh, and then I don't really do other social media. So good luck finding me anywhere else. I probably won't respond to them
2: <laughs> That's
0: pretty much LinkedIn's it for me. I'm a voyeur on Facebook. LinkedIn's my social part. So
2: That makes you sound spooky.
1: <laughs> Man, we could, we could keep this going all day, but we do, we do have a hard stop here. Josh, thank you so much for coming in, for sharing your energy and, and your insights. and. Uh, I don't know, Tim. Any final thoughts?
0: No, I. You know, well, before we had did this, we were talking about his kind of where he came from, Nova Scotia and all that. And uh, we, you're definitely Josh, the most Viking looking we've had on the show. (laughs) So I'm, I'm very pleased to have you on. But it's great having you on. Love, I love this, uh, this coaching. I didn't expect it to go this route, so real
3: Mm -hmm. happy it went this way.
1: Yeah, you're coming back.
3: Yes. Well, I super enjoyed it, guys, and yeah, just. Any anytime I can be useful, please just reach out. I love helping. All right. Thanks, Josh. See ya. Bye everybody.